listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look at why the magic is starting to fade on the Magic Kingdom for Disney in Florida as the entertainment giant continues to clash with Florida's state government and Governor Ron DeSantis. In particular, the latest salvo, the Walt Disney Company, scrapped a plan to invest nearly $1 billion to build a new corporate campus in Florida. So what's behind the fight and how has it devolved into such a bitter one? And while Canadians often look across the border at U.S. culture wars with a certain sense of superiority, this country is also in the throes of our own fight over identity, history, and what it means to be Canadian. The author of the upcoming Trolling Ourselves to Death joins me to look at what is fueling our fight. There is no greater feeling than finding money, right? Even a few loonies in the couch, for instance. Well, there is nearly $200 million worth of unclaimed money in British Columbia alone. And we meet the nonprofit called the BC Unclaimed Property Society uh, and talk to them about the work they do helping to track those people down and how you can find out if you have a forgotten windfall in your future. But first, it's going to be anything but a normal Victoria Day weekend for tens of thousands of Albertans. Officials are advising people there to consider postponing their long weekend plans as nearly 100 wildfires continue to burn throughout the province. We find out how governments can do a better job at mitigating wildfire risk before they burn out of control. We'll head to Alberta because it's going to be anything but a regular long weekend for tens of thousands of Albertans. Officials are advising them to consider postponing their long weekend plans as nearly 100 wildfires continue to burn throughout the province. Colin Blair is with Alberta Emergency Management Agency. He says the situation remains volatile and it's going to be hot and dry this long weekend as well. So danger is still very high. He says it is critical that all Albertans remain vigilant. Many provincial parks are closed. As well, we are strongly encouraging Albertans to postpone plans to visit public lands this weekend. More information on bans and park closures is available online at alberta.ca. We need everyone to do their part and help reduce the risk of fires this weekend. Right, because there are already 93 wildfires burning in the province. 26 of them are out of control. More than 2,800 people are fighting those fires. And there are 17 evacuation orders in place this long weekend. More than 10,000 Albertans remain out of their homes. Christy Tucker is with Alberta Wildfire. Uh, she says more than 830,000 hectares of land have already burned, equal to about 10 times the size of the Metro Calgary area. May long weekend is traditionally a time when we see a spike in human-caused wildfires. And human-caused wildfires are entirely preventable. Last year, we saw 97 new wildfire starts over this weekend. And that was under much less extreme wildfire danger levels. Right. So... Uh... Be, you know, reasons to be careful. Of course, smoke still an issue as well. Uh, there are high high smoke warnings in places such as Edmonton tonight. Uh, and across the border in BC, there's an open fire ban right across northeast BC there. Conditions very similar and the danger very much the same as well. Joining me now is Jen Barron. She's a PhD student at the University of British Columbia who's focused on wildfires and forest ecology. Jen, thanks for your time tonight. Great. Thanks for having me. This has been a really, I mean, I watch these wildfires every year, specifically for those of us sort of out west where I'm in BC as well. This year has felt particularly bad and it's all happened so fast. It's a tinderbox. It definitely has happened very quickly, yes. So this definitely is an unusual spring in terms of fire behavior. Spring fires aren't unusual necessarily, but it's the, the size of the fires, the number of fires that are escaping suppression that's unusual about this year. 
And some real warnings. This, I mean, long weekends tend to be a time when people head out into nature, especially if the weather is decent. And uh, that, as as uh, Alberta F- uh, Forest Management was pointing out, uh, poses some dangers in of itself. It does, yeah. So um, coming with this weekend in both BC and Alberta, we can expect to see restrictions put on outdoor recreation activities in areas with elevated fire danger. The reason for that is because particularly this time of year, uh, most ignitions come from human ignition sources um, accidentally. So whether that be an unattended campfire, a cigarette out a window, um, an off-road vehicle, uh, when it's this hot and dry, it doesn't take much to start a spark. Uh, similarly, we can expect to see fire bans, uh, open burning and campfire bans, and then also pretty widespread impacts of smoke continuing across both provinces. Right. You mentioned it, it, it doesn't have to be fire either. I, I was talking to a firefighter last week, uh, or earlier this week rather, and they were saying that some of these fires are started by something as, as you know, like sparks, sparks from vehicles. Something as, as minor as that can set something up, set something alight pretty quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you have that really hot and dry cured grass, especially we see that, you know, often later in the summer as well, it doesn't necessarily have to be an ignition um, like on your part. So, for example, from a campfire, it could just be the muffler on your vehicle that could start an ignition. Well, I mean, you've pointed out that part of the issue here is that forest management can be improved. I mean, this is this is, is exceptional in some ways, but not surprising. Uh, you know, the boreal, the whole area was very dry. It was a dry fall. It was a dry winter. It's been a pretty dry spring. And, you know, the whole area is ripe for this. And we could be doing better when it comes to trying to prevent these. For sure, yeah. So, um not to say that fire suppression isn't an important investment. I mean, this problem is not going to solve itself and we can't be cutting corners on costs, including investing in fire suppression equipment and personnel. Part of the challenge right now is resourcing, especially in, in northern parts of BC um, and Alberta and bringing in crews from outside the province. Um, and the more trained personnel we have, the faster we can action those problem fires that might potentially reach communities and the better chance we have. Um, but in the bigger picture, We need to shift our perspective from expecting that we can put out all of these fires to thinking about how we can have fire on the landscape in a more benign way. Um, So part of the reason we're seeing such elevated fire risk right now is because we've been so successful at putting out fires for over 100 years. And so there's a pretty large accumulation of fuel across a lot of these landscapes. Right. And I guess when uh, that's what we're seeing this year, right, is just how 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 dry and and tinderbox it like it is. Tell me a bit about that, because I think one of the issues we've always thought that if a, if a fire starts, um, you put it out. Right. I mean, especially now with so much encroachment into these areas by us. Um, but that suppression doesn't allow the forest to renew themselves as they normally would. Right. That's correct. Yeah. So fire is a very natural part of almost all Canadian ecosystems. That includes, you know, northern parts of Alberta and BC and the boreal forest, uh, where we have a lot of species that are adapted to more infrequent high severity fires. And then more southern parts of interior British Columbia, where uh, ecosystems are adapted to much more frequent but much less severe fire. And in both cases, the removal of fire from these systems alters the, the vegetation that grows there. And in combination with forest management practices, we've made our fire our forests much more vulnerable to high severity fires. And and yet, and yet there's so much of it, Jen. Like there's so. I mean, you look at where what's burning now. It's such an incredibly large piece of land that 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 it consists of. How where do you begin to start some of these forest management practices? Absolutely, yeah. So there's different strategies in different locations. Um, and I'll say as well, the current situation in Alberta, northern British Columbia. 
Uh, part of it is also the time of year. So right now we're in what's called spring dip, which is when we get, you know, low moisture content in a lot of the evergreen or conifer foliage. Uh, deciduous trees like aspen haven't leafed out yet, so their, their leaves haven't grown back, which would normally reduce fire spread. And so because the sunlight is reaching the forest floor and everything down there is pretty dry, it means that fires can grow a lot more quickly in that area this time of year than normal. Um, but it's really the, the current drought and wind conditions we're seeing that are contributing to these very challenging to suppress fires. So some of these strategies for management at this broad scale is one, the main value that we're protecting is usually communities. So starting at the communities, looking at, do we have evacuation plans in place? Um, are communities uh, using the fire smart programming to help protect their properties? Do we have infrastructure in place, including, you know, appropriate road networks to, to get people out of communities in advance of, you know, when you see smoke in the sky. And then also thinking in the bigger picture, different strategies we have include, Fuels reduction treatments like uh, thinning, so removing fuels from the stand, um, smaller trees, which can also be put through um, for biofuels as opposed to um, having wasted biomass. Um, we can do lots of prescribed burning at different scales um, and for different reasons. And then as well, managed wildfire is one strategy that we can use. So a managed wildfire or a modified response would be when we get an ignition under conditions that we have lots of control over, you know, not this year, but in those quieter fire seasons where we have a wet spring, we let it burn, remove some of the fuel from the system. We set up a boundary for where we don't want it to exceed. And then we prevent some of the negative consequences if it were to ignite under current conditions, for example. Talking about what a um, different kind of long weekend it's going to be, specifically in Alberta because of all the fires. Authorities there are warning people to be very careful. This is a time of year. The long, the May long weekend is when a lot of human-caused fires are set in Alberta. 97 last year, I think. And there's 97 burning now. So authorities warning people to be very careful. They've closed some provincial parks. And really telling people just to try to stay home. I mean, not stay home the whole time, but, you know, if you're planning on camping or anything like that, I mean, be very, very careful. Jen Barron is a PhD student at the University of British Columbia who is focused on wildfires and forest ecology. I mean, Jen, the, the field that you're in seems to be changing so rapidly, even in the time since I've arrived out west uh, in 2015, you know, there, were the, there, was, there was Fort Mac and then there was Lytton and now there's these fires, there've been others in between. It feels like this is becoming an annual event and it feels like we're not quite sure how to better management manage it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So even when I started working uh, in this discipline, 2003 was the benchmark fire season in BC. Might, many might remember 2003 as, as the year with the Kelowna fires, the firestorm. Um, mm -hmm. And since I've been studying fire, we've seen 2017, 2018, and then 2019 in Alberta, 2021 again in BC with Lytton and a, and a very long fire season. And even though last year wasn't you know, a particularly severe wildfire season, we did see fires extending much later in the fall than we normally would. Um, so definitely things are changing. Um, I may be cautious to use the term new normal in the sense that they won't stay like this either. Things will continue to change um, as our weather patterns continue to change and as we, you know, change or adapt our forest management practices. But certainly we're going to continue seeing more severe fire seasons more frequently not necessarily every year but across canada north america likely in in some location every year is there enough work done in those down years um 
to prepare for these years? Because I was I was reading, of course, Alberta, there were some budget cuts. I mean, it's expensive to manage fires, right? It's expensive to do this work. And yet uh, we seem to always respond to it when it starts as opposed to uh, engaging in the kind of prevention work that might help mitigate these sorts of things. And I, I don't mean that as a blanket statement, but it feels like we're always fighting the fires instead of trying to prevent them. And I know that's not universally true. Yeah, so... Often, uh, fire management is primarily reactive as opposed to proactive, so we wait till the ignition starts to suppress it. Uh, but there are many more things that we can be doing from a mitigation and prevention standpoint, um, especially during those fire seasons that are quieter. We really need to take advantage of them from a staffing and training perspective um, to enhance capacity around doing you know, some of those more proactive treatments that I talked about, like prescribed fires uh, thinning treatments. We need to have dedicated, you know, personnel and budgets for mitigation independent from fire suppression. So right now, most of the budgets for mitigation are pooled with suppression resources. So if we get a really large fire season, even if we have good windows for prescribed fire in the fall, there may be no budget available to do those types of of treatments. And we need to start addressing some of these bigger barriers around the mitigative measures as well. So there's still quite a bit of issues around, you know, uh, capacity, training capacity for people who can do uh, the different treatments. There's um, issues with cost and liability frameworks and also public perception. So, of course, right. when people are exposed to fire all summer, they don't want more smoke in the fall through prescribed fire. So trying to, to work on public communication around, you know, why that might help prevent the severe fire seasons in the future is also very important. Well, Jen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. What is better than finding money, right? I remember, remember those old days when you used to, people used to carry cash. I mean, I did too, where you'd reach into, you know, you'd be doing laundry, you'd reach into a pair of pants, you'd find like a $20 bill. That was always my absolute favorite feeling. It doesn't happen as much now in this increasingly cashless times that we live in. And I suppose it won't happen as much in the future. That doesn't mean, though, that there isn't money out there that could rightfully be yours that you don't know about. Uh, there is a group here in BC, there are others across the country as well, um, called the BC Unclaimed Property Society. Uh, and over the last 20 years, the organization has operated under a government mandate to reunite British Columbians with money that's been abandoned or forgotten in old bank accounts with government departments in the form of unclaimed court payments, for instance. Lots of different ways that money kind of goes unclaimed. And lots of it, by the way, a lot more than you'd expect. But most people don't even know it's there. And ironically, these days, when they get letters saying, hey, you know, you have this money, a lot of people look at it and go, well, it's too good to be true. It can't be possibly be true and ignore it. So it is a it is a great name for a group, uh, the Unclaimed Property Society, but they face their own challenges as well. Uh, joining me now is Sherry McLennan. She's the executive director of the BC Unclaimed Property Society. Sherry, thanks for your time on this Friday. Hi, Ben. I'm really happy to be here and talking about uh, unclaimed property because it's something most people don't know enough about. No, what a great name. I mean, to work for, for the BC Unclaimed Property Society must be a great conversation starter at, at any party. Well, it certainly is, because people want to know, what is that property? You know, is it land? Is it jewelry? And no, it is money, just money. So how does this money get forgotten? And, and, and what do you do? Uh, what exactly does the organization do? Sure. Well, money becomes forgotten for a number of reasons. I think most frequently people tend to move around a lot or they change jobs and they don't leave a forwarding address 
or, you know, they change uh, their address with Canada Post, but only for a few months. And then mail that comes later never reaches them. So, uh, you know, holders, companies that have this money for them, don't have any way of tracking them down or finding out where they are. And then in other cases, people are just unaware that there's money that could be owed to them, such as in the case of an inheritance from a distant relative, uh, where there's money that was paid into court, maybe they were part of a lawsuit years before, and didn't realize there was leftover funds that were paid into court that they're eligible for. So where does all this money end up? And, and, and how, do you, how do you come into the picture? Yeah, well, we come into the picture because uh, in any organization, whether it's nonprofit, government body, uh, private company, they're required to make reasonable efforts to find the owners of dormant accounts. You know, if there's been no activity on the account uh, anywhere for one year to 10 years, depending on the type of account, after that, it's unclaimed. And uh, certain, certain organizations are required under the Unclaimed Property Act to transfer money to us and other organizations do it voluntarily because they don't want the hassle of maintaining a searchable database themselves and just having these dormant accounts on their books. And then once the money comes to us, we track it in our database so that people can search online. And we also search a number of uh, government databases and, and do some Googling to see if we can find the people whose names we have and the money we have. Yeah, I, I, that that was my next question. So, I mean, I know you. I know you don't have an army of people, but there are, I think, six or seven of you, right? Um, yes, there's six of us. So, how do you go about trying to locate these folks? Yeah, it begins when the money comes in. Uh, we immediately uh, do what we call location efforts, and that is uh, looking for people with similar names in different government databases, and then letters will go out to each person with the same name, giving them a little bit more information about the money that we're holding and letting them know that they need to provide us with not only a government ID to prove that they are who they say they are, but also some linkage to the money. So most commonly we'll have something like a forgotten credit union account, and then they're able to bring an old statement for that credit union account. And then we know we've got the right person. You have about $190 million, according to your website. That's a lot of money. We do, yes. We get uh, millions of dollars every year. And so that number does go up. And so I really encourage people not to just check once, but check annually. Maybe check every time your car insurance needs renewal. Right. Because there is money coming in on a regular basis. Now, sure, I know, I know this is for listeners in BC specifically, but there are other organizations across the country, not many, mind you, but a few others as well that do very similar work in other provinces. That's right. You know, in the other provinces, they're all government departments. Uh, BC is unique in that we're a not-for-profit doing this. And I think it was very progressive, you know, 20 years ago when the government decided to work with the Vancouver Foundation to create a not-for-profit to administer the program and then to use some of those dormant funds for charitable purposes. In the other provinces, it's Alberta, Quebec, most recently New Brunswick, and they're all uh, part of a government program. And I do know that a few years ago, Manitoba was doing some research into it, and Ontario is looking into it as well. Into the non, into doing it your way, or into doing it uh, because this the way BC does it seems like a really good idea to me. 
Yeah, well, I know Ontario is looking pretty seriously at, at the BC model, and I know they're interested in it. We've been exchanging information and sharing how we do our work with them. I'm not quite sure what the status is in Manitoba. One part of the story that I was interested in, of course, we're also conditioned now to be very fraud aware, right? And and yes. things that appear seem too good to be true usually are. But in your case, I guess that's proven a bit to be a bit of a challenge for your organization where you're trying to alert people to money that is actually there for them. It, it, it absolutely is. People are very skeptical. And actually, this is why it's so great to have the opportunity to talk to you on the radio, because we've definitely had people come back to us. Oh, I thought this was a scam. Then I heard you on the radio. So um, it, it's, it's hard to build trust when you send a letter and say, we have money for you, but now we need your personal identification. And, <laughs> you know, yes. so it, it, it is challenging. But we've uh, recently revamped our website. We've really tried to emphasize our government mandate and show the linkages uh, to the legislation and the linkage to, you know, the government uh, finance department that's got oversight of us. So people, when they get their letters, they can Google, they can research, uh, they can talk to our staff and, you know, get some third party validation about who we are and what we do. You, uh, and uh, I, of course, you have a wet. You have a. You can search your own name. I know because I tried myself, and there's no money waiting for me in BC. I can tell you oh, that. Too bad. <laughs> well, you never know. I'll, I'll try again. I'll try again well, next you, year. You don't know, right? It's like a scratch and win, except you don't have to pay anything. Yeah. So um, you know, people who want to check that out. It's bcunclaimed.ca, and you know. You, you Google that and you'll see our site and it's got a big search bar right in the middle of the page. Just type in your name and you will find out in seconds whether or not we have money for you. Right. Because I remember correctly, the federal government has something similar, right? Because there's, I mean, yes. the money gets money gets forgotten all the time, which sounds strange these days in, in these inflationary times. But people forget about bank accounts all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think things like RRSPs or TFSAs where they're not, you know, it's not like a checking account they use all the time. And so it is easier to forget about, you know, if you're moving or your relationship breaks up, you know, people have a lot of things on their mind and, and it's just easy to forget that. Right. And, and funny yeah, we talk to people and, and they say all the time, I would never forget funds. And then, oh, surprise, we have money for you. <laughs> <laughs> people must be really, once they realize that what you're telling them is true and that the money is in fact theirs, people, do you actually deal with the people themselves? They must be pretty excited. I don't personally, but our staff do, and that is just one of the joys of the job. And people are happy, and sometimes they send us chocolates. Not necessary, but kind of a nice treat when that happens. So, yes, they're happy. Yeah, not many government-affiliated nonprofits uh, get to to be that loved. (laughs) So that's that's great. Exactly. Um, Talking about rightful owners being reunited with their unclaimed property, money specifically, what could be better than that? There is, in B.C. alone, Something like $190 million lying there unclaimed by people who it rightfully belongs to. And in BC, there is a nonprofit called the BC Unclaimed Property Society uh, that is in charge of that, in charge of trying to reunite rightful owners with their money. Uh, what what a noble goal. Sherry McLennan is the executive director of the organization. She's been with us uh, this half hour. Uh, Sherry, I understand that, it's, that the average isn't a lot of money. And I know you can't talk about this much, but there are a few really big ones as well, one that's nearly $2 million? That's right. Uh, this We're just in the process of uh, getting that very large check out. It was uh, 
money that was paid into court pursuant to litigation. So that's about all I can say about that. Right. And uh, it becomes unclaimed with the courts after five years, and it was transferred to us and uh, quickly applied to get it out. Yes, indeed. That's a bit like winning the winning the lottery. <laughs> um, how? What is the time frame like? Because I noticed on your website, if you look up a name that actually my wife's name's in there, but she isn't. Um, oh. <laughs> but but when when you, some, it looks like some you you take possession of some of that stuff for many 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 years, and others have a set yeah. time limit. Or is there a set time limit? There, there's no set time limit for people to make a claim. Uh, but the money we track in the database, you know, dates back to 1859 you know we we had a note from government about uh and and it was an estate where the lawyer couldn't find the beneficiaries and uh that that money was transferred to us ultimately so there's some you have to hang on to in perpetuity right yeah yes yes so the, the you know the ability to claim is always there Right. Um, money that isn't claimed, though, and this is an interesting part of this story as well. Money that isn't claimed, uh, what, what, what money is that, and when does it go to the good cause that it goes to? Yeah, well, we work with an actuary to determine how much we can transfer to the Vancouver Foundation. And uh, the Vancouver Foundation has a mandate to support charities and not-for-profits across the province. So it's a really good partner for us, and it was part of the idea when the government actually worked with them to create a nonprofit uh, to make use of these unclaimed funds, because otherwise they would be sitting there in accounts like that money from 1859, and no doubt it's been put to good use through the Vancouver Foundation by now. So we keep enough funds on hand so that we're very confident. Again, we work with actuaries to know that we've got enough money to pay out whatever claims are made at any given time and uh, to transfer a safe and sustainable amount over to the Vancouver Foundation every year. Right. I gather it's been about $55 million in the, la- in the last decade, right? That's, that's, that's a lot. That's a good chunk of change. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, actually over 20 years of our existence, nearly 59 right. million over to the Vancouver Foundation, and it's unrestricted for them, so they can prioritize where they see the needs greatest in the community. Their hands aren't tied with how they distribute that money. Right, and and there is no just so people understand, there is no commission here or anything, right? Like there's this is no. this is money. You're simply act as the middle person. Where the yes, exactly, exactly. Right. And over time, you, you, you've reunited people with, uh, and this is just in BC, by the way, for listeners. If you are in other parts, we'll talk about this again, because if you're in other provinces, it's good to know. Um, but just in BC alone, you've reunited people with a, quite a lot of money over the, over the last 20 years. That's right. It's about um, 22 million, just under 22 million that we've returned to people over the last 20 years since we've been in business. Wow. Um, yeah. And for, we, we mentioned it earlier. So, so other provinces that you mentioned, I think it was Alberta, Quebec, yes. and New Brunswick have similar government-run things. They're not, not, not. It's not the same, exactly the same system, but they have a similar setup to what BC yes. does. They just don't have you. Um, That's right. And uh, many of the states have similar uh, government departments managing unclaimed property as well. Over in the UK, they've got a model that's more similar to what we have in BC and Japan does as well. So internationally, it's quite interesting to see what else is going on out there. You must chat with them a little bit about how to how to do how everything works and how to improve and how to streamline. And if you built a new website, clearly you had some inspiration there. Yeah, absolutely. Quarterly, uh, check in with other Canadian plans, see uh, what they're innovating, where their challenges are. 
um, how they reach out to holders, for example, to educate them and make them aware of their obligations under the Act. So, yeah, it's a great community and exchange of ideas. So and then uh, we also yeah. engage with the U.S. They've, they've also got an umbrella organization, and they're a great source of information as well. Right. So you still have the $190 million in unclaimed uh, sitting with you. I suppose if you're in B.C., by the way, this is specific to B.C. I just was really interested in the story. Um, if you're in B.C., you might as well give, or even if you've once lived in B.C., uh, or yeah. maybe just go onto the website and put your name in there and see what happens. You can, it takes, takes a nanosecond. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like I said, it's like a scratch win. Just put your name in, see if your name comes up. Why not? Right. And if you do get a letter from you, mm-hmm. how, should you how should you proceed? I mean, they look. do they look more, they must look quite official? Yes, yes. We've uh, just rebranded this year. So we've tried to take a much more modern and more professional approach. So I, I hope that it certainly, you know, is received that way. We, we think we've succeeded in that regard. But yes, we've got a phone number, people can call us, they can Google us, they can go to our website to get more information. And that's right. bcmclaim.ca. Sherry, did you look up your own name before you before you before yes, you joined? And, and no money. <laughs> no money. No moolah. No, no, exactly. Uh, bcunclaimed.ca is where you can go. Bcunclaimed.ca. Well, Sherry McLennan, thank you so much for uh, for shedding some light on this. It's uh, it's a really interesting initiative, and uh, yeah, wow. I, I, you know, we don't think about it much, but that's a lot. One hundred ninety million dollars is a lot of money. Well, that's right. And then you have to think of the Bank of Canada for bank accounts, right? Because that's right. federal. So that's another searchable database for missing bank accounts or federalized credit unions. Yeah, that one I've looked in as well. And apparently I've always been very good at, me, at, at <laughs> taking all my money out. So there you go. Sherry, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Bye. The Walt Disney fight the Disney Corporation fight with Florida, well, specifically uh, Florida's state government and the governor, Ron DeSantis, has been something really strange to watch from afar. Because when you think about it, I think as a Canadian, especially one, I think a lot of us have been to Orlando at some point in our lives, uh, you know, fortunately, it is fun to see Disney World, um, that you could sort of think that Disney and Florida kind of go hand in hand, like oranges or beaches and, and Disney, right? And yet they've had this incredible fight over the last year a bit, uh, year and a bit or so. It all kind of started when Disney spoke out against a something that was called the Don't Say Gay Law in uh, in in Florida, quote unquote, which really restricted talk about sexual orientation in primary schools. And you know, and and Disney as a corporation with a very broad and diverse audience and customer base felt the need to stand up and say, listen, we don't agree with this which of course is entirely their right as an organization to say listen you know we're, we're not into what this is we don't think it's right um and good for them for speaking out i mean good for them maybe we don't think that corporations should take stances on everything but this seemed like a pretty a pretty good one for them to take uh to stand up and say listen we want to be counted on this one well the backlash from from the state government was pretty pretty intense right uh, i don't know if you've been following the whole soap opera that's been going on for the past year or so well it, it, there was a new chapter in that said soap opera yesterday uh the Disney company announced it was scrapping a plan to invest nearly a billion dollars to build a new corporate campus in Florida. The reversal again comes uh, as they're having this fight with the Republican-led government in Florida uh, headed by Ron DeSantis. The plan would have seen about 2,000 employees relocate to Disney-owned, uh, a Disney-owned complex.
complex there, moving them from California. DeSantis called the move unsurprising. The Orlando Business Journal reported the project was valued at $867 million U.S., and that the average annual wage for a job there was 120000 So that's a lot of good jobs not coming in to the province. Now, to give you an idea of what Disney means to Florida, uh, they employ more than 70,000 people there. They are one of the biggest tourist attractions in the state, bringing in, if not the biggest, bringing in 50 million visitors each year. And they've been having this big fight. And it's just, it's an odd thing to watch from afar. So we wanted to figure out a little bit more about why it's happening. To help us do that is Aubrey Jewett. He's a professor at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. So right on the front lines of this and assistant director of the School of Politics, Security and International Affairs. Aubrey, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're right on the front lines of this one, aren't you? Right in Orlando where it's all all unfolding. Tell me about this latest move because it's uh, it's easy to put it into the kind of the idea of this fight that's going on between the governor and Disney. At the same time, it feels like it might have been a business decision as well. Still plays into this bigger picture that we're looking at. It does, yeah. There, there's been a feud between Governor DeSantis and the Republican legislature and Disney. And that's been going on now for over a year Ultimately, it's led to Disney filing a lawsuit and accusing the the governor and the Florida legislature of trying to punish Disney. But what recently happened was Disney also, a couple of years ago, announced that they were going to do an investment to move several employees here and really just start up a whole new development for their uh, motion picture side and animation side, et cetera. And so there was, this was supposedly going to be a great deal, bringing a lot of high-paid jobs to Florida. Well, Disney announced that they were no longer going to invest this billion dollars in Florida, and they were no longer going to transfer those employees. And they said rather generically that it was due to the changing business climate, <laughs> among other things, in Florida, which if you read between the lines, I think there was probably several things that went into the decision, but probably one of the biggest was why transfer all these high paying jobs to a state that seems to be just hell bent on punishing you and treating you badly. Yeah, this looked like a big one. 2,000 employees were going to move, be moved to Florida. And these are big jobs, too. They're sort of high-level jobs within the company. So I think the average annual wage was about $120,000. That seems like a really – that seems like the kind of development kind of investment that any state, any province would want. Oh, yeah. I mean, Florida definitely wanted these jobs a couple of years ago. And in fact, one of the reasons Disney was going to move was because of the tax incentives that the state was going to give Disney for doing it. So, so you know, talking about special privileges, right? Uh, in the end, I think they realized that tax climate's not the only thing that matters. Why would they want to expand their other employees and their other businesses and invest a lot of other money right now if they just feel like the state is not treating them well, right? I mean, and clearly the state is not, honestly. Yeah. If you look back at where this all began, this was over a don't say the quote unquote don't say gay law that that was passed by the state of Florida, which applies to sort of talking about sexual orientation in primary schools. Is that where this all started? And then Disney spoke out against it. Is that is that the basis of this feud? It really is. The state legislature, the governor, as, as many people know, and, and probably a lot of Canadians know, <laughs> Governor DeSantis is our Florida governor, really seems to have his eyes set on running for the Republican nomination. And so you've seen a whole host of conservative legislation passed and conservative actions taken by the governor. And so this don't say gay bill has tried to, um, you know, sort of fuel the culture war against the LGBTQ community. And Disney, when that bill passed into law, said, you know, we disagree with that bill and we don't think it was right. 
And in the meantime, they also said, you know, we're going to stop donating money to candidates for time, for the time being. And when they did that, the governor just went, at first they said they were going to get rid of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is the special taxing and service district that Disney had. But they acted so quickly that after they looked into it a little more, they realized, well, we can't really get rid of the district because A, it offers all these services and B, it's borrowed like a billion dollars in the bond market that has to be paid back. And if we get rid of the district, then regular taxpayers will have to pay it back. So they quickly kind of gave up on that idea and instead decided, okay, well, we'll keep the district, but we'll change who controls it. Under the old system, Disney as the largest property owner got to elect a board that was very Disney friendly. Under the new system, the governor gets to appoint five member board and they are people who, generally speaking, are not Disney fans right now. Aubrey, for for some, what strikes me about this is that it's both at the same time so very petty and yet so very, in some ways, so fundamentally important because you have this corporation that knows what its audience is and it's standing up and saying, we disagree with this. And then you have, you know, a, a governor who has broader ambitions, sort of trying to hammer away at these issues to, to aggrandize himself. And caught in the middle is this incredibly successful relationship between a very big corporation that's got a lot of big breaks over the years from the, from the state and the state that has this huge tourist attraction, employer, tax giver. It seems like the worst of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, I over and over again, you know, I'm just dumbfounded every time I see the tensions sort of ratchet up because when you look at the importance of Disney to the Florida economy, I mean, Disney helped to make Florida, modern Florida, and particularly modern central Florida. You know, when they came here in the 60s and became such an international global phenomena, you know, people come to to visit Disney. They pay uh, over a billion dollars in state and local taxes every year. They have about 70,000 employees right on single site at the Disney World complex. And the other thing I might add is over the last like 25 years, Disney has been a very loyal supporter of the Republican Party. I mean, they have given millions of dollars to individual Republican candidates in Florida and to the Republican Party of Florida. They've also given to Democrats, but they've given a lot more to Republicans because Republicans have been in charge for more than 20 years of our state legislature. So that's what really boggles my mind. Disney has been such a, a loyal Republican supporter and not just over this one issue because they dared to speak up. I mean, the, the, this, the reaction of the governor just seems to be to be sort of beyond the pale, notwithstanding one's view on the parental bill of rights. Don't say gay bill. It, I take the position. I mean, it's just not right for the government to try to punish a company for speaking out. It'd be one thing, you know, governor could certainly say, hey, Disney, we don't agree with you. The public here in Florida, the majority, they, they like this parental bill of rights and we, you know, we object to you. But to then go beyond that and and really seriously try to punish them and hurt their business, to me, that's like one step too far. Aubrey Jewett is with us. He's professor at uh, the University of Central Florida in Orlando. We're talking about this ongoing fight between Disney, certainly one of Florida's most important um, businesses, as both as an attraction, as an employer, as a taxpayer. Uh, As Aubrey was pointing out, they help build Central Florida and the government and Tallahassee. You know, the the governor is fighting, punishing the company for speaking out against the quote unquote, don't say gay law from last year. And this continues and continues. Uh, Aubrey, it says something interesting about American politics right now that a party that was always seen as being very pro-business, and that's why Disney's been such an ardent supporter of Republicans for so long, has suddenly turned on a dime over issues, a sort of culture war issues that seem 
seem very strange to the outsider when, and when looking at these things that you would you would double down on an, on an issue like that and then punish your own reputation in your own state over it. Now, I imagine there's some sort of benefit to Ron DeSantis or he wouldn't be doing this, but it, it, it seems very strange compared to what the traditional Republican Party would look like. It does. And, you know, I always tell my students when I'm lecturing on the parties, the glue that held the Republican Party together is the economic policies, right? The pro-business economic policies, keep taxes low, keep regulations low, you know, really listen to business when business is trying to lobby you. The Republican Party might differ on a lot of other things, like sometimes Republicans have differed on foreign policy, you know, what exactly to do, or there's been a libertarian wing of the Republican Party that says, oh, social issues, you know, we shouldn't be pushing some of these conservatives uh, issues. And if the religious conservatives would say, yeah, we, we should push these social issues. But the one thing they typically all agreed on was being pro-business and keeping taxes low and keeping regulations low and supporting business. And that really does seem to be changing. And it, it, I think you saw it a little bit when President Trump was in office, but Governor DeSantis is really carrying it much further. It seems as if it's just changed a lot because the governor basically has said, look, this is corporatism, and that's different than just having a free market. And he basically has come out and said, you know, we don't think large corporations should be changing the social fabric of the United States and the government and our, our government will work to stop that. Yeah, I don't know what Ron DeSantis would do if, the, if we remove the word woke from the lexicon. I mean, the, the, you know, <laughs> and, he's, and, and he's, he's announcing his presidential bid next week. At least that's the rumor. And what's ironic about all this, of course, is that Donald Trump has been attacking him mercilessly for for going after Disney essentially saying exactly what what we've been talking about which is you know you're an idiot for doing this and, and it's funny it's funny that that tables have turned they have yeah and the the, the governor has been attacked by uh, quite a few people on a lot of issues but it is interesting when you start to see some republicans are finally speaking out and saying they think this has gone too far and of course for trump it's a matter of maintaining that pretty big lead he has currently in the polls amongst republicans because he wants to make sure that he wins the nomination. And so this is a great way for him to attack DeSantis and sort of put DeSantis a little on the defensive. And some of the other Republicans uh, nationwide, for instance, Chris Christie, who was used to be governor of New Jersey, Republican, thinking about running for president, governor of um, New Hampshire, uh, Sununu, mm -hmm. you know, they both have said something to the effect of, you know, the Republican Party we know is not one to punish a business for speaking out. That's usually what we accuse the Democrats and the liberals of doing is yeah. you know, trying to punish companies for speaking. That's that's to us is not conservative and not Republican. So we're beginning to see a little bit of blowback. But as you pointed out earlier, I think Governor DeSantis continues to lean into this because he believes, and I think probably correctly, that within the Republican base of voters who will turn out for a presidential primary. This helps them. They just want to see the governor go after, quote unquote, a woke corporation. And they don't really think much beyond that. Yeah. And where does this end, do you think? Does it, it doesn't feel like it right now. It doesn't feel like it's going to end well. Right. And and where it ends is in court. I mean, the, the, the court battle has begun and Disney finally got to the point where they just thought we can't. We I think Disney desperately didn't want to go to court. They really wanted to just try to resolve this without ratcheting it up. And and when the governor and the legislature initially announced that they were going to do away with Reedy Creek, the, Disney was very quiet. 
And even when the new board was announced, Disney initially sort of said, oh, you know, we work with a lot of different government arrangements around the world. We can we can work with this one. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they work in Hong Kong. I mean, they work everywhere. They know, right? They know how to do but this. Then, of course, Disney pulled a little surprise by by having the Reedy Creek board, the old Reedy Creek board, you know, do a development agreement that transferred all the power to Disney and took away all the power from the new board. Yeah, and of course, that's part of the lawsuit as well, part of the countersuit by the by the new board in the state. So bottom line is it's not going to end, I don't think, until, um, well, one of two things happen. Either the court battle ends or perhaps Governor DeSantis, um, you know, becomes president and, and leaves Florida and then it's not um, not interested or worried about this issue on a day-to-day basis anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, Aubrey Jewett, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your insight on this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we've had a text from George and Airdrie who uh, was talking a bit about Alberta politics. Of course, there's lots of numbers. I don't know if you watched the debate yesterday. It was a really good debate, I thought. I thought both um, both leaders did well. Uh, according, I'm sure their supporters are both happy with how they did. Lots of numbers being thrown around, though. And I'm always a little suspicious of uh, having covered politics for a long time. Uh, back when. You know that uh, when politicians start throwing numbers around, they're usually, um, if not if not entirely, they're not often incorrect, but they're certainly, they're certainly tailored <laughs> to prove a point, and they usually need a little nuance. So um, uh, George Energy says, as a newcomer to Alberta, I'm confused by the statement, the NDP raised taxes 97 times, but I only pay 5%. Is that, I think the number might be there, but how do you explain this? So thank you to the CBC. They che- they fact-checked this, and, and then they did a good job. I read all the way through it. They went to an economist. Um Apparently, what was the, the increase was taxes and fees, ninety seven times. Only only a few of those uh, were actually tax increases. And fees are different. Like what do you what do you have to pay for a court filing and so on? And those often follow inflation. So, as a matter of fact, there were some tax hikes during the NDP's time in government. Corporate tax income tax went from ten to twelve percent. They're talking about raising it again this time around. And uh, they also created some new tax brackets for incomes over $125,000 and increased taxation of each of the four new tax brackets. So there were some tax hikes there. Uh, Jason Kenney's UCP government reversed the the um, corporate tax hike, putting it back to 8%, but never changed it for individuals as far as I know. So that hopefully that explains uh, what it was. There were some tax hikes in there, but it was mostly fees. So when you see that 97 number, it's not taxes. So hope that uh, hope that settles it. It may not. Uh, go have a look for it as well if it doesn't. But again, anytime politicians use figures, they tend to be self-serving, right? I mean, that's just the way it works. And that's politicians of all stripes. So anytime, trust but verify. That's always my my uh, my my rule of thumb when it comes to politicians. Not all politicians, by the way. There is a new breed who simply will throw at any number they choose and that are often not whatsoever based in fact. But, uh, you know, if we go back historically in this country, people still tend to be relatively honest with numbers, relatively. So check and then explain, right? Um, we've been talking, we talked in the last half hour about, about this fight between the government, the, the state government of Florida, specifically Governor Ron DeSantis and the Disney Corporation, the Walt Disney Company, and just how, how, how bitter it's gotten. And, you know, and, and Disney is one of the biggest employers in the state. It's a huge tourist attraction. They've had a long and very cozy relationship um, there that's been very profitable for them and also very good for the state. And now all of a sudden, it's turned into this fight. And a lot of it boils down to a lot of this sort of culture war stuff. I mean, if you hear Ron DeSantis say the word woke one more time, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? I don't even think he knows. And I was kind of disappointed to see a conservative party 
tweet today talking about no more woke because it's such virtue. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I mean, if you're upset about some of the things that the Liberal government has done, fine, let's talk about it. But to brand it all as this weird thing that no one really understands, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I think, I, honestly, I think it's, it doesn't serve anybody. I think it's kind of dumb, honestly. Because what does it mean? What does it even mean? You know, no more woke, let's bring home common sense. That means nothing. It means absolutely, it's verbiage. It's verbiage. It means zero. Think about it. And it becomes this sort of dog whistle. And it's not nice. It's not cool. So, you know, in this country, we sort of, we, we look down a little bit at the Americans and their culture wars and what's going on there now, specifically during the Trump presidency. But we're having our own fight here. And it's not a fight that necessarily needs to be denigrated or needs to be not necessarily a fight, but we're having a discussion. We're having a national conversation, I think, about our history about what it means to be Canadian. Who gets to be included in that? Who gets to tell that story? How many more people should be brought in to tell that story in a different way? These are really important conversations. They don't get solved overnight. A lot of people will disagree about them, um, but they, they should be had. So I was a little off-put but when they started tearing down statues because I thought, wait a second, let's have a conversation about this. Let's learn from this instead of, instead of simply acting unilaterally and saying, this is now bad and we're going to get rid of it. Now, there are exceptions to this, clearly. So let's have a real conversation about this thing. You know, I, I read the other day that they're starting to rewrite a lot of the plaques um, on our national parks. Parks Canada is starting to rewrite some of the plaques that they thought found were, you know, at least historically more offensive right now. Uh, quote unquote, colonial assumptions was why they're doing it. And, and I get that too. But these are the kinds of things that we shouldn't turn this into two camps yelling at each other. We can't because then no one's going to be happy and we're all going to fight over stuff that we should be looking to agree on. The passport issue was one of the latest ones, right? I liked the, I liked the images in the passport. I thought they were nice. I thought it was you know I didn't use it as a history book, but I liked the I liked the picture of Terry Fox in my passport. But keep in mind the conservatives put those images in, the, in there ten years ago, even though bureaucrats told them not to. They politicized our passports. I mean, if anybody politicized our passports, they did by putting those images in. So now that they're all up in arms that they're being taken out, it seems a bit it seems a bit ridiculous. And I like those pictures. I liked Terry Fox in my passport. I think they should have found a way to keep him in there. But sort of putting all those, wrapping yourself in the flag and claiming to be more Canadian than everyone else, that was what Harper was doing 10 years ago. I don't necessarily disagree with being proud of, you know, being Canadian or, or any of that stuff. But when politicians start to do it, you have to ask yourself some real questions. And that goes for the guy who's sitting in, the, in, in 24 Sussex. Well, he's not sitting in 24 Sussex, but that goes for our current prime minister too. Anytime a, a government tries to tell you what it's like to be who you are, you should be deeply suspicious. So that's a conversation I wanted to have tonight because we were sort of talking about the American circumstances before. And I thought, let's look at what's happening in this country. To do that with us is Jason Hansen. He has a book coming out called Trolling Ourselves to Death. He's an associate professor at the University of Winnipeg in the Department of Rhetoric, Writing and Communications. Jason, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. A great department named Rhetoric seems to be seems to be uh, an important issue uh, in this one. But let's start with, with where, where this is happening, because it feels like there's a sort of push and counter push about what exactly the country is, what it means to be Canadian. It's kind of fundamental in many ways, but so much of it is tied up in sort of symbolism and, and, and these little things like the passport issue that just kind of blow up without people, without anyone expecting them to. Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing about national identity is that it's 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 a work in progress it's an open conversation and well it doesn't mean that anything goes but neither does it mean that it's you know fixed for all eternity we're 
we're always in this conversation about what it means to be Canadian. Unfortunately, it becomes this um, site for, for these uh, culture war battles. When we think of culture war, I think it's something that we often associate with the U.S. that have sort of turned it into a turned it into an industry of sorts. I mean, so much of their politics seems to be oriented around it now. It's felt less so here, uh, but we're certainly seeing evidence of it. There's a lot of sort of codification of the kinds of words that are used and so forth. Have you seen it grow here over the past while? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, unfortunately, one of the things that we have imported from the United States is their cultural war battles, right? So to the extent that Canadians consume uh, American news media and, and, and cultural content, to that extent, we are uh, importing some of these some of these battles which don't even have a place um, here in Canada. So it's it's you know not uncommon to find Canadians who are concerned about their First Amendment rights, their Second Amendment rights, right? They're, they're concerned about um, uh, gun rights, um, but they use American language to talk about this, which is really, really uh, interesting, but also sad in a way. When when you look at the, at, I mean, one of the things I found interesting about the passport issue, because I'd covered it originally, is that 10 years ago, the Conservatives under Stephen Harper deliberately put more historical imagery in or put historical imagery in the passport for the first time against the advice of their own bureaucrats, by the way. Here we are 10 later, years later. The liberals have then redesigned the passport. And, you know, there's it's turned into this kind of flashpoint over this battle. But these are two governments who have kind of different views, sort of, of what it means to be Canadian. And the passport just became a template for it. Uh, this it's it's normal for governments to uh, change the passport when they when they when they come into power. Right. And so the conservatives have a certain style for doing this and liberals have a certain style for doing this. Kualiev has given the impression that this has somehow been etched in stone from, you know, the founding of, of, of Canada. And now um, Trudeau has come and erased Canadian history. I think the um, idea was that he had put the delete button, press the delete button on Terry Fox, which is. Right. A really, you know, silly, silly idea. I mean, a passport, it's a government issued travel document. It helps to facilitate travel. It's a form of identification. It's like a driver's license or an employee ID card or a membership at Costco or something like that. It's not a monument. It's not a memorial. It's not a statue. And the idea that Canadian identity somehow hinges on a passport is is really just very, very strange. And it's a distortion of what a passport actually is. Right. But I think what he was touching on and what he's quite effective at tapping into is that the passports became came to symbolize something much bigger, which is this notion amongst a group of Canadians that somehow this government is attacking the, the history of this country, and it's become quite a common, uh, quite a common conversation in some corners, and that the passport just became the latest. If it was statues a few years ago, you know, if it was plaques or whatever, it's now the passport just came to symbolize something much broader. And I think he tapped into that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's not the first to, to have done that. So um, Stephen Harper did uh, do something similar as well. Um, his close, you know, confidant and advisor, Tom Flanagan. Mm -hmm coached him to embrace the politics of fear and anger. And unfortunately, it works. When you have a very atomized, alienated, isolated, and lonely society, and Canada is a very, very isolated and lonely society, 
then fear and rage are one of the few things that actually bring people together. Fear and rage will compel people who would otherwise never talk to each other to stand together in a, in a, in a demonstration and shout absurdities against an imaginary enemy. And unfortunately, this kind of thing works. And yes, they specialize in manufacturing outrage over imaginary enemies, whether it's critical race theory, you know, what have you, pick your, you know, fictitious demon. But um, that's unfortunately the kind of politics that have been making its way uh, into Canada. Um, Trump does this sort of thing very well. Um, and unfortunately, Pierre Poiliev has taken a page straight out of his uh, playbook. And it did accelerate. You mentioned that you found this became more pronounced uh, during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Masks and vaccines should never have been politicized. We should have just, you know, followed, you know, the the science on this. Um, but unfortunately, they did become politicized. And unfortunately, you know, th- this had this had material consequences, public health consequences. There were people who died um, as a result of the politicization of masks and vaccines. Unfortunately, the pandemic did bring these, it, it did it magnified and amplified the culture wars. And now the passport issue is kind of writing on the same energy. Jason Haddon is an associate professor in the Department of Rhetoric, Writing and Communications at the University of Winnipeg. We're talking about culture wars Canadian style. In the last half hour, we talked about DeSantis versus Disney. I mean, that seems like the most extreme example of where this has all gone. But on this side of the border, we have our own Canadian, our unique Canadian approach to the culture wars uh, brought over in some, some of the rhetoric, obviously brought over from the U.S., what I find interesting, though, Jason, is that on both sides of this debate, so whether you consider yourself, I'm, I refuse to use the word woke in a conversation, but if you consider yourselves on sort of the enlightened side of this debate or on the more traditional side of this debate, each side seems to have their own tropes and their own their own words and their own codes. And it just feels like anybody who wants to have a rational conversation about, well, does that statue belong here or not, is drowned out. It's done. And that's what I worry about. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, this is uh, this is a huge problem where we lack trust. So we we've been divided into rival and competing camps and political factions, and um, we have our organizing banners and slogans and you know terms and and symbols. Um, and the result of this is that we. Uh, unfortunately, are uh, becoming increasingly divided and at war with each other. So the result of this is that it's a serious and profound erosion in uh, public culture and the culture of democracy. And so my concern is that we are moving, maybe not as quickly, but we are moving in the direction of the United States. And that's something that we should all be concerned about. And one of the things that I that I worry about too sometimes is that it then, then it becomes no holds barred, right? If you consider someone to be on the other side of a divide and you don't respect that divide, and this works both ways, uh, but but that and then everyone becomes fair game. Everyone's either with you or, or against you, and then we see it all kind of devolve to sort of that level of respect and dialogue we've had in this country for a very long time that I think we're quite proud of. Um, then starts to get eroded quite quickly. Yes, absolutely. This is the um, I mean, we have we have we have to talk about the epidemic of uh, distrust, which has been a a problem in the United States for quite some time, but unfortunately has spread um, here in Canada, where depending on what label you give to someone liberal or conservative or, you know, leftist or what have you, uh, based on that, without actually getting to know the person, you've already 
put them in some sort of a box and then basically refuse to talk to them as a fellow citizen, as a neighbor, as a fellow human being. And then unfortunately, we're morphing from a community of democratic citizens into allies and enemies. And that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I, I know the, the the billion dollar question here is what do you do about it? I know you're writing a book, so I, we won't go. But but what what do you where do you how do you dial this back? Do you think uh, we need to rebuild a spirit and culture of trust? So yeah, I do have a chapter about this in my forthcoming book, trolling ourselves to death, uh, and I think that the one uh, site where we can rebuild a culture of trust along with media literacy and political literacy is in our schools. And something that I've noticed is that uh, it seems to me that young people tend to be far more mature and civil towards one another than many of our adults, unfortunately. So we can have disagreements in my classroom. We have, you know, students from all across the political spectrum, those who identify as conservatives and liberals and all sorts of, you know, different political points of view. But one thing I notice is that they, they don't they don't shout at each other. They don't resent each other. They can disagree without wanting to, you know, go after each other's throats. And so I think that classrooms, there are spaces where we can cultivate the practice of civil dialogue. We can cultivate trust. And this will take some time, but I think we urgently need to rebuild uh, a culture of trust. And I think classrooms are the, the place to do that. Trolling ourselves to death is, is, I mean, I remember amusing ourselves to death for many, many years ago. And this seems like the, like sort of the, the, the mirror opposite of that, you know, that in fact. Uh, it is a you know, sequel to that book. Uh, it, so so yeah. uh, Postman's book was about the effects of television on democracy. My book is about the effects of social media on democracy. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that is is trolling in of itself suggests a very counterproductive and mean spirited approach to die to any kind of discourse, right? The argument of the book is that the trolls have left the cave, so to speak. They're not just restricted to the uh, you know comment section of uh, social media posts and blogs and so forth. Trolling, unfortunately, has gone mainstream, and we are now seeing politicians who are trolls. We're seeing, uh, uh, you know, people who they're no longer hiding behind a clever avatar and screen name. They're out there um, perfectly, you know, happy, uh, not anonymous at all. And they're happy to embrace uh, this uh, trolling style of communication. And it's something to be very concerned about. How do you, how would you spot it? I mean, I think I, we know it when we see it, but it's hard, it's hard necessarily to define exactly what that looks like. So I think that the one thing that uh, distinguishes all forms of trolling is this gratuitous desire to harm, to inflict a wound on some sort of an enemy, to mock, to harass, to bully, whether whether it's an enemy. There, there are politicians who will troll citizens uh, in the comment section of their of their uh, Twitter pages. It, it's it serves no purpose. It serves no purpose other than to get a rise out of the enemy, the perceived enemy. Right. Um, and so this kind of thing, unfortunately, it's becoming um, very, very uh, uh, commonplace, right? Where you have politicians who don't have the um, respect to address um, fellow citizens on the other side of the political spectrum with in, in a civil tone. They will, you know, uh, subject them to some sort of generic label 
It's very derogatory and it's intended to it's intended to make fun of and belittle the the, the supposed enemy. Right. And I guess the culture wars, quote unquote, just play themselves right into it because it's such a facile way of doing it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The culture wars of the 90s, those were all conducted on the pages of newspapers and television stations and uh, in books. Now it's largely happening online. Well, Jason Hannon, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you so much for having me. Obviously, AM radio is important to me. It's important to, I hope, you. Uh, and there's a fight going on over it. First, though, some texts uh, with what we've been talking about or what we were talking about in the last hour, which is sort of culture wars and uh, this whole notion of identity and so on. Jasper makes a really good point. We need to give people the space to learn, uh, to consider other perspectives and change their opinions. This polarization we're experiencing will take active efforts on both sides to overcome. I, I absolutely agree with you, Jasper. And I think there is a lot of people in the middle here who aren't happy screaming at each other. I mean, I understand why people were, were upset during the pandemic. I understand why people railed against mandates and even masks for that matter, which I think were perfectly normal. But, you know, you try to consider what other people may be thinking about things and stop and give them the time to say what they want to say. I mean, here's one thing I know fundamentally from having covered politics for a long time in Ottawa. You may hate Stephen Harper. You may think he was the worst prime minister. You may really dislike the conservative government. They didn't destroy this country. They made a few, they tinkered around the edges here, made a few changes here and there. But essentially, they were they were fine, you know. It was it was good to have a conservative government in power for a while. And then Justin Trudeau came in, and you don't have you can loathe his government. But they haven't changed that much in this country. No prime minister, no government, no federal government has that much power. They just don't. They become these sort of bellwethers for all that we're angry about, all that we dislike. And it's completely, it's completely sort of irrational. It's completely irrational to, to sort of target. And so here's here's what will happen. Say hypothetically, Pierre, Pierre, Pierre Polyev wins. They win. The Conservatives win the next election. Well, you know, people are going to loathe him too, and they're going to say he's destroying the country. When in fact, you know, prime ministers in this country, and we were talking about this earlier with, with Tristan Hopper on Wednesday, they do have a lot of power, but they don't have that much power. This is a big country. There's municipal governments, there's provincial governments, and even they don't change your life that much. They just don't. So it makes it's fine to sort of have target all your anger about the way life is against a particular politician or party. But it's misguided. It's misguided. Listen to what they have to say. Figure out what they have. Any solutions to things that really trouble you, like affordable housing, uh, taxation, all that stuff that matters to you and your family and your community and the people you love, and vote for them. If they just want to blame everybody else for everything or pretend that everything they did was great, uh, you're wait it's a waste of time. It always has been. It always has been. I don't trust any of them. I mean, I don't distrust all of them. I think they're all there for decent reasons. But man, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. Anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on. AM radio has been a big deal. Um, we talked about this earlier this week, that it's under threat because car companies, specifically those making EVs, are looking at getting rid of them. Apparently, the, the EV engines cause AM to be staticky and it annoys people and they want to get rid of it. Um, so this week, legislatures, on, speaking of bipartisan, legislatures on both sides of the floor in the U.S. moved to protect AM, introducing a bill in Congress called the AM in Every Vehicle Act. Here's what lawmakers told Fox 5 in New York about it. It's our source for news, for weather, for sports and entertainment. And it's a um, uh, it's a crucial part of our diverse media ecosystem. If Toyota and Chrysler have figured out the interference issue, why can't Ford and Tesla 
figure out this issue. These companies say the electromagnetic noise from their electric cars can disrupt the reception of AM signals. But that's a ridiculous argument because we know that early Teslas used to have well-functioning AM radio. That's because AM radio is resilient to cyber attacks, nuclear threats, and natural disasters. So when the cell phone goes out, internet gets cut off, or television doesn't work because there's no power to your house, you can still use AM radio. Some senators and a congressman there talking about this uh, move to protect AM radio. The Congress, the bill is called AM in Every Vehicle Act. It essentially would force automakers to include AM radio in cars at no extra charge. Um, now, AM, as, AM it goes back like 90 years is the first push-button AM radios were in vehicles. And by the late 30s, they were kind of a common option. And then over the weekend, the Washington Post reported that BMW, Mazda, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Tesla, amongst others, had already removed or were planning to remove AM radios from at least some of their electric vehicles. Ford apparently going one step further, ditching it at all their new cars. But again, for many uh, listeners, AM radio isn't a thing of the past. So earlier this week, before that act was announced, we spoke with Michael Harrison, publisher of Talkers, the leading trade journal covering the talk media in the U.S. Here's what he had to say. And thanks for having me on. This is one of those um, news headlines that, that you, you expect to see, but when you do see it, um, it still comes as a bit of a shock. So what exactly is, is going on? I, I mean, according to the Washington Post, it looks like a number of car companies are looking at getting rid of AM on, uh, on the radio that's included with your car. Yeah, especially with the electric vehicles, because it, it'll cost them a, a bit of money to be able to modify the engine systems so that they don't generate a lot of static. AM radio is sensitive to what's called RF, you know, radio frequency, mm-hmm. and all the cell phones and everything else make a problem for AM. But electric vehicles have proven to be a problem. So they're, they're using that as an excuse not to have to include AM radios in their cars. Not every company, Ford has been talking about it, several other cars. This has been an issue in the U.S. for a while now. And um, the Washington Post story kind of blew it out into the open. And a lot of people are quite shocked about it. And um, I've been asked, you know, to comment on it, as have a number of people in the uh, in the radio business. It, it is it is shocking to a certain degree, especially those of us who've grown up with AM radio and have an appreciation for both AM and FM, what they mean. Here, as we enter deeper and deeper into the 21st century, and all kinds of changes. Indeed. And I guess Ford, uh, I mean, this was a quote from a Detroit Free Press article, but uh, that Ford was was looking at uh, getting rid of AM, not just in their EVs, but also in their gas vehicles. So sort of, I mean, I could see why that would make sense for, for a car company to sort of standardize the radios they put in all their vehicles. Uh, but you thought that was particularly misguided. I think it's very misguided. I think that, uh, first of all, AM radio is still being used. There are millions and millions of people who listen to AM radio. Talk radio, which is sports talk and news talk, is predominantly on the AM band, and it has tremendous impact on the public, on the national conversation. In other words, it's a vital medium. And then you have foreign language radio. A lot of people who who live in the United States or in Canada, I assume, they don't speak English or French. Uh, and, and, and they come in from Asian countries or European countries, and they have no lifeline to their community or to the folks back home. So these stations are a lifeline for them. And then there's the religious radio, not to mention a lot of older people don't really know how to use the Bluetooth and, and all of the different gizmos that are um, necessary to bypass AM or FM. So it's unfair to them 
as well. And there, there are many more incidents of uh, reasons cited. Uh, there's the safety reason. There's the national defense system. Um, when, the, when the lights go out, the computers are down. The AM is point to point. So it, it is no question that, that radio, like movies and magazines and books and things that are rooted in the 20th century, are eventually going to be replaced by new technology. But in the case of AM radio, it's premature. It's, they're, they're trying to save a buck as opposed to being sensitive to millions and millions of people, not to mention all the people that work in those industries and make their living that way, and the amount of money that um, business has tied up in AM properties. I wasn't surprised to see, but 4,000 USAM radio stations still, you know, news, talk, sports, everything you could, th- just all the things you just mentioned. How has it managed? I mean, I remember back in the day as a kid listening to Top 40 on AM, then that moved, right? Music mostly moved off AM uh, when I was, you know, not that fairly long ago at this point, I guess, if you think about it. But AM has found a way to survive over the years in, in a way that, that I think would be surprising to someone if you, you know, went back to 1990 and said, by the way, in 2023, there'll still be thousands of U.S. AM radio stations, hundreds across this country. Aside from the foreign language and the religious and the ethnic formats I cited before, which are not to be taken lightly, Talk radio has revived AM, and a case could be made that talk radio has revived radio. I mean, the biggest names in radio broadcasting in America are on AM radio, and they're talk show hosts. The biggest names in AM radio are influential on politics. The, the, the irony is that we're talking about a almost obsolete medium technologically, And in terms of the culture, there's no question we're moving beyond radio. But of all radio, the the radio platform that has the most influence on the national conversation, on national elections, on popular culture, believe it or not, is talk radio, sports talk, news talk, religious talk, financial talk, health talk. This is a, a thriving, vibrant community. So... It's tone deaf on the part of the um, executives and the bean counters in the automobile industry who think, well, you know, we don't really need to have that. We got rid of gate tracks. We got rid of cassettes. We got rid of CDs. Let's get rid of the radio. People can hear what they want to hear online. And it's true. You can hear it online. But as I mentioned earlier, that's a little uh, more difficult. And something else that I pointed out in, in an article I wrote today in Talkers is that it's a betrayal. Because the the relationship between these two industries, the car industry and the radio industry, goes back 100 years. And radio has basically supported the idea that cars are an intrinsic part of the popular culture. And there's traffic reports and there's weather reports and and radio and and the music and and Little Deuce Coop and Daddy Took the T-Bird Away. And I mean, we're talking about a mutually beneficial relationship that has existed between these two industries in terms of um, increasing both sides standing in popular culture. They should be waiting another five or 10 years before they pull the radios out of the cars. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not backward thinking. I'm not a merchant of nostalgia. I know where it's heading, but it's premature. And that's, and that's the point. 
Michael Harrison is with us. He's the publisher of Talkers, the leading trade journal covering talk media in the U.S. We're talking about uh, car companies, specifically those making EVs, looking at getting rid of AM radios if they haven't already because they interfere with each other and they're staticky. So they've decided maybe they'll uh, just do away with them all together. And Ford, uh, according to a Detroit Free Press article, at least looking at doing the same for both gas and electric vehicles. So all their vehicles uh, going forward. There's no set date on this yet, but it feels, uh, at least according to the article, it appeared to be somewhat imminent. Uh, Michael, how you mentioned it earlier, of course, the legacy of AM radio and the legacy of the radio period and the car seem incredibly intertwined over time. Uh, but how important is the car still to AM radio? Very important, have to admit. Um, and that's why there's such a big deal being made about it. So much of radio listening takes place in the automobile. And and radio is designed for the automobile. Uh, there's no video aspect of it. It's very difficult to uh, drive and watch a, a, a screen. Already as it is, the passengers in the modern era are <laughs> they're into their own screens. Not everybody is listening to the same speaker anymore in a car. The kid, everybody has their own little you know, smartphone and they're watching their own movies and all that. So at least leave it for the driver to be able to listen and not be distracted. They're very important. And, you know, um, there is a tremendous political clout to talk radio, to news radio. It isn't like the automobile industry doesn't have its own warts and controversies, True enough. In, including electric vehicles, which um, research is indicating uh, is not so green as they'll have you think. I would think that um, the automobile industry would rather have radio on its side, you know, ticking off all of these uh, radio broadcasters across the country to suddenly looking at the automobile industry as somebody that betrayed them and somebody that's not a friend anymore. So I think it's really stupid at this point for them to do this. And I hope that they reconsider and back off. I don't think they expected this type of backlash. Yeah, tell me about the backlash because the article you were you were interviewed for the Washington Post article. I know it's been heavily quoted. You've been heavily quoted. It's been uh, it's been talked about a lot. What what has been the initial reaction, and what does and what does pushback look like? Outrage, total outrage on the part of um, people in the radio business and their allies. The NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, um, is um, up in arms about it. Former Vice President Pence has put out a public service announcement telling people to uh, write their legislators and complain about this. Uh, major radio station and radio group owners are making speeches about this and recruiting followers within the industry to use whatever clout they have as big businesses, as big communications organizations, and as big platforms and megaphones to show the um, the captains of industry in the car business that they're going down the wrong road, no pun intended. Indeed. This was very much an American-based story when it came out. I'm, I'm assuming I mean, anything that happens to American vehicles tends to happen to Canadian vehicles. Uh, I, I suppose on this side, we, we should be looking into weigh, weighing this decision on the Canadian side of the border as well. There's no question about it. I mean, the similarities between uh, the media in Canada and the U.S. far outweigh the differences. There are differences. Some of it has to be with regulatory rules and cultural differences. But technologically and in terms of broad strokes uh, culture, uh, radio uh, in Canada and radio in the U.S. is far more similar than, uh, than, di- than different. I think that people listening to your program right now will be outraged if this is the first time they're hearing about this. Indeed. And you mentioned there was um, some other issues at hand here. One of them is emergencies, right? We know that uh, that in the event of major disasters, that a battery powered 
radio can be a lifeline, right? It'd be Absolutely. To, yeah. Absolutely. Also, in many rural parts of the U.S., and I'm certain it's the same in Canada, mm-hmm. they don't have great internet service. No. So, so the idea that, well, you can always stream your favorite station, uh, it, it's not necessarily the case. And that's a, that's a major point. The, the remedy of using, you know, Bluetooth and listening to your station through the, the dashboard that already has a, uh, a digital component to it. Um, frankly, that's the way I listen to AM radio as I listen to it on my smartphone through right. the Bluetooth into the dashboard. But some people don't have that ability. And, and, and that makes it even worse because radio is supposed to be a lifeline. It's supposed to be something that aids in communication. And um, this is not being considered. So that's, that's another major reason why this is a boneheaded idea. Any predictions? I, I know no one has a crystal ball and predictions are awful. But, but any predictions as to what's going to happen here? Um, all I could do is, is, is predict like a weather person that, that the, the facts as they are right now, I don't have a crystal ball, but based on the way it's going, I think that they will reconsider. Michael, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on this. Thank you, Ben. Lady Wilson, if you don't know the name, a week ago tonight, the Louisiana-born singer and actress took home four Academy of Country Music Awards. That's a lot, including Female Artist of the Year and Album of the Year for her album, Bell Bottom Country. And she was thrilled. Have a listen. I wrote 300 songs during the pandemic. And um, a lot of folks have shared with me that this album has changed their life. But the truth is, writing these songs for this album saved mine. So... Bell Bottom Country is country with a flair. Woo! Come on! It's a state of mind and I'm always there. Yeah, she was she was so excited about that. It's another feather in the cap for the 30-year-old who's gone from one success to the next of late, including a role as singer Abby in season five of the Smash. TV series Yellowstone, if you're a fan. Uh, the show also helped catapult her further into the stratosphere by featuring several of her songs in earlier seasons. And again, of course, this year. It didn't come easy for her, though. She spent 11 years in Nashville working hard and looking for that big break. That really came in 2021 uh, with an album called Saying What I'm Thinking and a track called What a Man Ought to Know. And it really that really sort of started the momentum upwards. And it just hasn't stopped since. And she is coming to this country, by the way. She's touring with Luke Combs. Uh, so she's playing stadium shows in Vancouver and Edmonton. And she's also playing smaller venues on her own in between tour dates in Winnipeg, Calgary, and Saskatoon. So we wanted to give you a taste of one of the hottest uh, acts in country music. And Lainey Wilson, we spoke to earlier in the week, and of course started by saying what a great run it's been for her of late. It has been wild. That's the best way for me to explain it, wild. Well, it's it's not like you didn't earn it. I mean, you've been at this for a long time. But I wanted to start about talking about the tour because you're you're going to be in Canada, which is of course for Canadians, uh, exciting. Um, is it you're playing huge venues and smaller venues? That must be interesting for an artist to do both. Like, what do it sort of night after night as well? It does keep it very interesting. You know, one night I'll be playing a a room of three thousand capacity, and the next night I'll be playing with Luke Holmes um, with sixty thousand people. So. You know, I feel like I'm right now I'm kind of getting the best of both worlds. I get to have my headlining show where I get to, you know, for an hour and a half, I get to get up there and really get to know the audience and have the audience get to know me back. And when I'm up there with Luke Combs playing my 30 minute set, 
I am ripping and raring and trying to get the crowd pumped up for some Luke Combs. So I get to do both. Yeah, I was seeing an interview with Luke Combs where he said that he always liked to to prep other people. Like there's a, it's it's a big responsibility when you're uh, when you're one of the acts coming on before because you're really there to uh, to build up the main person, but also to remind people about how great you are as well. That's right, and and I will tell you, Luke Combs is a great one to go on the road with. He's just he's exactly who he. It was when I met him in 2014. He'd come over to my camper trailer where I live and That's right. we'd write music together. And it's just a full circle moment for me to to be out there for him and, and with him. And so it's it's kind of second nature for me to to want to get people pumped up to see him. He's just like a brother. Yeah, you guys have similar story. I mean, you really both, I mean, you particularly, but you both really paid your dues in Nashville. I mean, you both did it. Did it I wouldn't say it was the hard way, but you did it. Yeah. You know, it nothing came easy. That's right. That's right. And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, everybody's got their their own stories and their own journeys, but it has taken me a very long time. I've been in Nashville now for 12 years trying to do this thing. And for me, it's never been any other option. It's no plan B because I feel, felt like if I had a plan B, then plan A was not going to work. So I knew that I loved country music and I knew that that was never going to change. And dang it, it feels good to feel like country music is finally starting to love me back. You tell this great story about being on a road trip with your parents and sort of seeing the AT&T building, the Bat building, right? At one yeah. point and thinking, this one day, how did you know? It, I'll tell you, it was a really strange feeling. I mean, even at nine years old, I just had a weird feeling, a weird sense of peace about knowing that I was supposed to be here. I was supposed to tell stories. I do believe my love for storytelling came from being from a town of 200 people in Northeast Louisiana. And I mean, we'd sit around a kitchen table and tell the same old stories we've been telling for years or hear the same old stories you've been hearing for years. But it seems like every time you heard them, um, maybe you heard them from a different angle or they got better over time. And um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to make people feel something. And I feel so lucky to and blessed to just be a part of the country music industry. That's all I've ever wanted. Yeah. And and you'd written your first song by age nine, had you not? Yeah, it was really close to when I took my first trip to Nashville. I believe in the same year, nine years old, I came to Nashville for the first time. I wrote my very first song for the first time and I got my very first pair of bell bottoms. So a lot (laughs) happened when I was nine years old. Here we are. The bell bottom thing is great because I guess I, I mean it, it has become to it's come to symbolize you. How did you how did you land on the bell bottoms? Because I mean I remember back to those days they would sort of I remember when they were popular in the seventies because my mom had a pair and then they kind of mm-hmm. disappeared and they would sort of come back every now and then they would wind their way through culture and then they would disappear again. How did you land on them? Well, you know, I've always been a sucker for things that are throwback. I mean, if you walk into my house, you'll see my daddy's old rodeo chaps or you'll see my mama's china cabinet. And I feel like things that are throwback come with a good story. I've always loved the look of bell bottoms. And like I said, when I got my very first pair at nine years old, it was like my mama said, you got to take those off. We got to wash them at some point. I mean, it was I was just completely obsessed with them. I had been in Nashville for four or five years at that time. And I was trying to figure out. What could I do that's different, that's uh, still true to me and, and real to me and something that I love? And I thought about those blue leopard print bell bottoms. I mean, truly, that's what I, I felt comfortable in. That's what I felt sassy in. That's what I felt like I could take over the world in. So I decided, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to stick with it. And so now I've been wearing bell bottoms every single day for about seven years. It's not easy being 
a female singer songwriter in this industry and you have to do something that kind of makes you stand out a little different because it doesn't matter if your music is is decent or your songwriting is decent um it's like you got to do a little something extra and that's what i have i have done what's what's remarkable about it it's, and it's your music too and it's your whole story is that authenticity is the hardest thing to come by right it's hard to be authentic and it's hard to be authentic and be successful because you have to doubt it you know, that's all you got right you just got you right. and 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 you got to rely on you have to sort of think this is going to work eventually but it's tough it's tough your story coming coming in your in your in your little camper to nashville and then and then toughing it out for 11 years and then here we are i know it's a journey and the crazy part is we're really just getting started. I feel like when people ask me, like, how are you feeling? I, I honestly feel like I have been preparing for the race my entire life. I feel like I just entered it and just now I'm about to run it. So, you know, let's not count the 12 years I've been in Nashville doing this. I've been working at this since I was nine years old. I mean, I impersonated Hannah Montana in high school. I have you literally, did. I, I did so many things to to get me to this point. And I have said yes to so many things. and. Um, like I said earlier, you know, everybody's journey looks different, but I truly do believe that time was supposed to be a part of my story, maybe for the little boys and girls, for them to know that things don't happen overnight. You got to plant those seeds. You got to water them if you want them to grow. Lady, did you get the feeling that, that maybe you needed more life to tell better stories? Like maybe, maybe the journey was, was part of it? Absolutely. I was actually just telling somebody that the other day. I said, when I rolled into town in 2011 in my camper trailer, I mean, I thought I was ready. I thought I was ready to sell out some shows. But the truth is, I had not lived enough life at that moment to tell the kind of stories that I was supposed to tell. And I'm okay with it. I'm okay. I, I trust the Lord. I trust his process. And I'm glad that it's taken me this long. I don't know if I would have felt like I deserved it. But right now, I truly do. Lainey Wilson is with us uh, this half hour. A great pleasure. Uh, it's been a hugely successful year for Lainey. Uh, have you been? Have you spent much time here? I know you were kind of in the Rockies when you were shooting Yellowstone, so you're you're kind of nearby. But have you spent much time in Canada? I have not, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, I've I've been wanting to come up that way for a long time. My good old friend Megan Patrick. I mean, she sings everybody's praises over there, and she just she has been telling me for years. She's like, I'm telling you, when you go up there, there's nothing like it. So. I have I've been up there a little bit, but not near enough. So looking forward to it. Tell me about Yellowstone because it's a great story. I remember your songs in the show, so that was kind of the introduction. I, I think that was an introduction to a great audience too. And all of a sudden, in in season five, there you were. And uh, how did that happen? So Yellowstone has been really great to me for years now. So they put a few of my songs in season two and season three, which really did introduce me to a lot of folks. I mean, the soundtrack to that show is very beneficial to be a part of. I truly do think that they have helped kind of bring that Western way of life back and and make it cool again. And I'm so glad to be a part of that wave. But Taylor Sheridan, the writer and producer of the show, I became buddies with him. You know, he was willing to help me any way that he possibly could. And he called me in February of 22 and he said, I've got this idea. He said, what about you being a part of the show, you play in a musician, you can wear your bell bottoms, you can sing your own songs, but go by a musician named Abby. I mean, I had never acted a day in my life at that point. And without even thinking, I said, count me in. I mean, this was an opportunity for me to share my music with the world. And you dang right, I was going to be a part of it. So I dove in head first and did things that were outside of my comfort zone. But I feel like at this point, that's the only way that you grow. 
I heard you say that you actually stopped memorizing your lines. You're just trying to do a little bit of ad lib. That's 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 walking on a tightrope without a net, isn't it? Oh, for sure. You know, I I was familiar with the lines. It was kind of like learning a song that I didn't write, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't learn them too much to where it did look like I had memorized it. I wanted it to look conversational and kind of come across the way that that I normally would. You know, I, I definitely I had somebody kind of giving me some pointers and that was that was one of her pointers. She said, you know, of course, I want you to be familiar with with all of it, but don't overlearn it because that's when you can really mess up. So so, well, here goes nothing. Have you enjoyed it? Is, is I mean, that part of it, just taking a flyer and, and going to do it. I mean, I'm sure you knew you could do it, but uh, it must have been tense at the beginning to think, I wonder what this is going to look like uh, when it's when it's said and done. Oh, for sure. I mean. There were a million cameras around trying to get certain angles. And like I said, this was my first rodeo. And I will say it, it was during a time of my life that was really hard. My daddy um, was in ICU during That's that right. time fighting for his yeah. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was strange because I'd go do one of my scenes and I'd go over to the corner and cry a little bit. And then I'd come back and I'd, I'd feel more. But it did show me what I was made of, you know, that grit that my parents had really instilled in me and I had to pull it out during that time and so if I did it during that time I'm excited to see what it's going to look like next time I get to do it without anything traumatic going on yeah how is your dad because I know you I heard you talking about how your dad used to play Glenn Campbell songs on a, on a flatbed truck back in your hometown that was sort of the first performances you would have watched and how, how influential right. he's been for you for sure he's he's actually doing really good he's good. been farming the last few weeks so as long as he can climb up on a you know, on a tractor and um, do the things that he loves, I'm not too worried about him. So he's doing great. He's still hard-headed, and he's still a bull in a china shop, so he's doing okay. What do they think of all that's happened to you in the past little while? I'm, I'm sure they never had any doubt, but, you know, uh, you know, it must be it must be a real whirlwind for the whole family. It does feel that way. You know, they were my, my first believers before anybody was. You know, my mama would sit in the bathroom with me for hours where the acoustics were the best. And she'd listen to the new music I've been writing, 9, 10, 11 years old, and try to help me, critiquing me a little bit. Not that she knew how to write a song, but she was a teacher. She really kind of helped me learn along the way. So it's been a whirlwind for them, too. But just like you said, they never had any doubt. My daddy, and now in the end, he'll, I'll say, what do you think about all this? And he'll just go, ain't that something? So it's uh, that's pretty much all he's got to say. He's a man of few words. Uh, well, ain't that something? That's a pretty good way to sum it up, uh, lady. Tell me a bit about WWDD. What does that what or what does that mean? Because I I gather that's been a big part of your mantra as well. It for sure has. WWD. Right. What would Ollie do? <laughs> she. Uh, that's the question that I ask myself all the time. Even when it came to the Yellowstone opportunity, I did. I, I thought about. Dolly Parton. I thought about people like Reba, the kind of ladies who don't take no for an answer, the kind of ones who aren't scared to step outside of their comfort zone and and chase down other things. You know, I mean, of course, I didn't grow up dreaming about being an actress, but my songwriting has led me to this opportunity. And I feel like you're supposed to take opportunity. So I do go back to what would Dolly do all the time? Truly. I mean, she seems like she's got a heart of gold. She seems like she knows who she is and she has remained true to herself throughout all the success that she has. And that's really inspiring to me. I feel like I could learn a whole lot from her. Just, I mean, I already have and she's the best.
Yeah, I, I remember back the first time I ever saw Dolly Parton was in 9 to 5, right? It must have been 8, 8 or 9 it came out. And I didn't know much about country music and there was Dolly Parton in 9 to 5. So when you when you take a role in those shows, you really do broaden your audience to people who may not know you. And uh, I mean, even you no know, Dolly was, was famous by then. I just was young, but uh, it's a it's a big one. You got to meet her, right? You finally got to you, you, you I did. I got times. to meet her on stage at the ACM. So that That's was right. the um, the very first time. I'm like, I couldn't think of a better way to meet somebody. And especially her. Yeah, I, I guess the, this is. I know you can't talk about this, but is are we going to see what do we know about the second half of Yellowstone season five? Because there's so much speculation about it. You seem confident. Well, I'll tell you, I have learned that the TV business is even crazier than the music ah. business. So I don't know what's going on, and I'm not even lying to you about it. <laughs> yeah, but you'll be there. You'll be there if you need to I'm be there. I'm hoping. I'm hoping uh, Taylor Sheridan just needs to give me the call, and and we'll see what happens. I do laugh and say that they didn't take me to the train station just yet so i could be back in so you're gonna be in Winnipeg, vancouver on may 27th winnipeg on the 30th saskatoon on the 31st back in edmonton on june 3rd for the big stage and then back in calgary after that uh, fans will be excited to see you i'm sure it's been you're coming here you know you're you're just you're still cresting in your career and now you're canada bound it's gonna be great i cannot wait i'm looking forward to it really well laney thank you so much for your time and congratulations once again thank you so much 